It was Ed Doring's lifelong dream. It was the very top of his bucket list. He was driven to accomplish this feat. And there he was in the exact moment that he'd been dreaming about. He made it, 29,028 feet to the peak of Mount Everest. But this dream was tarnished by people. There was pushing and shoving in order to take selfies. He thought, this is an absolute zoo. Ed had waited in line for the summit for hours trying to get to this spot, as everyone who climbs Mount Everest has to, and it's not just any line. It is a line on a very dangerous, icy and rocky cliff, thousands of feet to the first section you'd hit if you fell, packed chest to back with people, all trying to get to the same place you're trying to get to in these sub-zero temperatures. You can barely breathe because the air is so thin. Ed was having trouble not just with this annoying and disappointing push-shove-selfie situation that he was sharing with these people, and not just physically struggling because the air is so thin and his body was in the process of literally dying, but because along the way, he saw things that were absolutely disturbing. Throughout this climb, the mountain was littered in not only garbage, but also dead bodies, and no one batted an eye. Actually, just a few moments ago, he had to step over a dead woman's body in order to get to the spot he was standing at the summit. This entire journey was bittersweet, maybe? Sure, you have the experience and you can brag and say that you've climbed Mount Everest, but bitter, of course, because seeing these dead people used as landmarks along the way is a vision that will forever haunt you. And then there's the things no one wants to talk about. How in the world do you poop on Mount Everest? Today, we're talking about the dark and deranged side of Mount Everest. This world-famous peak is a measly flat spot, the size of two ping-pong tables, which in comparison to the size of the mountain is incredibly small, and this flat ground is packed with 20 people all trying to enjoy their moment at the expense of everyone else. Getting out their cell phones for selfies, pushing and shoving, the rudeness of it all isn't something many people talk about. Dr. Doring, the one that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, said that the people aggressively fighting for pictures actually scared him. He plunked down on the snow to keep from losing his balance, and then after this experience, he passed two dead bodies in their tents on the way down from the line. 
The line you have to wait in to get to the summit is also not advertised. Actually, people die just waiting in line to get to the summit. This is because the summit is located in what is called the death zone, the area of the mountain where most deaths occur, which is the last 4,000 feet from the top of the mountain. The lines start somewhere around 1,000 feet from the summit, and they can't get up and down fast enough before running out of their oxygen supply. God, can you imagine suffocating because the line isn't moving fast enough? Like the panic. It seems like it would be just as bad as being buried alive, or at least drowning? Awful. Think about this. There are hundreds of other climbers, all trying to get to the summit. That means you have to wait in line. There can be over 200 people standing in line waiting for hours for their turn to stand on the top. And it's uninhabitable up there. Your body can't take standing in temperatures that have measured negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit during the coldest parts of the season. The wind up there is something to conquer as well. It can reach up to 177 miles per hour. That's because the peak of this mountain is in the stratosphere, which is where you can find the fast and freezing winds of the jet stream. Essentially, you're in a race against the clock to survive the line alone. Hundreds of climbers actually have to step over people who literally just died, still tethered to safety ropes in front of them. It is a morbid, horrifying experience. One part of the north side of the mountain is nicknamed Rainbow Ridge, not because it's beautiful, but because there are so many dead bodies wearing brightly colored climbing gear laying around. Once you hit the death zone at 25,000 feet, you're actually in the middle of dying. Your body cannot metabolize the oxygen, your muscles start breaking down, your brain starts swelling, fluid begins building up around your lungs and your brain. The oxygen level closer to the peak is around 33% of the oxygen at sea level. According to Alan Arnett, who summited Everest in 2011, it feels like climbing stairs and holding two out of every three breaths, and that's while using bottled oxygen. Climbers have to bring canisters of oxygen, because if you don't, or if you run out, you're dead. Less oxygen in the air means less oxygen in your blood, which leads to less oxygen in your brain. Now, the brain does not function properly when it's deprived of oxygen, obviously, and this will affect your mood, your central nervous system and coordination, and your cognition. The higher you climb, the worse it gets. So if you can imagine standing on the edge of a 25,000 foot cliff, one wrong move is the end of your life. Now imagine that you're totally drunk out of your mind and are expected to carefully climb these slippery, sharp rocks. According to Business Insider, climbers might actually forget that they're on Everest. They do irrational, strange things. They actually hallucinate. Some climbers have reported that the people they were spending time with on their journey were actually just hallucinations. People hear voices, some go into psychosis. This happens often enough that there is actually a name for it, and it's called third man syndrome. The effect of these hallucinations and psychotic episodes could have devastating effects. 
You have to think the only people who are able to report their hallucinations were climbers that survived and didn't do anything too risky or dangerous to die. I mean, even if you weren't in a psychosis state, your brain is messed up and you need to be making good decisions here, like life or death decisions. So basically, your brain is f***ed. Oh, and let's add in what's happening to your lungs, not just your brain. So you feel drunk, your mood is plummeting, and now you've got fluid accumulating around your lungs, which can lead to an annoying, persistent cough, labored breathing, and just a harder time exercising, no matter what kind of shape you're in. But there's more. Your heart. It is in charge of supplying your other organs and muscles with enough oxygen to function properly. So it's working twice as hard, more beats per minute, and more force per beat. It feels like your heart is beating out of your chest, even when you're just resting. So your body tries to help by producing more red blood cells as your body acclimates to the high altitude, but this actually means that your blood is thicker. According to Outside Online, researchers hypothesize that this thickened blood could precipitate heart attacks in those who are predisposed to having clogged arteries. And here's the scary thing. Another thing that climbers experience is something called transient blindness. Low oxygen in the air can cause spasms in the arteries that supply blood to the part of your brain that is responsible for your eyesight. And not only that, but you are more exposed to UV radiation because you're closer to the sun, and this can lead to inflammation in the cornea, which results in what they call snow blindness. Snow blindness is awful. Not only are you not seeing clearly at all, but you can also experience severe pain, tearing, and the sensation of having something stuck in your eyes. Okay, so you feel drunk, you can't breathe, your heart is pounding out of your chest, you can't see, and you have this horrible stabbing pain in your eye. But what about your stomach? Less oxygen means slowed digestion. 81% of climbers experience nausea and vomiting. 81%. So you're probably choosing not to eat on a good part of this journey because of how awful you feel. Climbers usually lose about 10 to 20 pounds after their Everest trip. Okay, so let's add puking to the list of terrible things your body is experiencing now. But wait, you are in sub-zero temperatures now, about negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit on average. Your body obviously cannot live like this. Even in your gear, you're probably going to feel prickly, tingly sensations in your arms and legs, and over time, they're going to go numb. This is the beginning of frostbite. If you can't warm up quickly, your skin is going to turn yellow-gray and become hard and waxy. Your joints will probably stop working in the areas that this is happening in, and this could lead to irreversible tissue damage and death, which leads to amputation, the only way to fix it. Your hands, your feet, ears, and nose are the most susceptible. Can you imagine losing your nose to frostbite? Oh my god. Now, unfortunately, it's not just dead bodies that the climbers are forced to step over. There are mounds of garbage. Heaps. Mountains of garbage. The trash situation on Mount Everest has gotten so bad that there is a rule that each climber is required to carry out 22 pounds of garbage when they leave base camp. But even that is barely making a dent in the problem. Why is there so much garbage? 
Well, because there are too many people with permits to climb. The Nepal government has tripled the number of permits it sells in a single season. Apparently, there is a lot of corruption in the Nepali government, and it's just about money. Nepal is one of Asia's poorest nations, and they have very loose regulations. Again, it's just the money that they're after. This means that there can be up to 800 people climbing the mountain at once. Many veterans who have taken the journey all agree that too many people on the mountain at once, and too many inexperienced climbers in particular, are the main causes of death. There's just too much congestion. The inexperienced climbers take longer to get through areas, especially where rope climbing is involved. They're more sluggish, and it's pretty impossible to pass someone in those moments, especially on the ropes. People have to wait for them to move up the ropes so they too can climb the rope. Basically, they bottleneck everyone, and it's very time-consuming, which in turn makes it very dangerous. And with Everest, if you want to make it, you must keep moving. One climber, Alan Arnett, who I mentioned earlier, said it like this, you have to qualify to do the Ironman, right? But you don't have to qualify to climb the highest mountain in the world. There's something wrong with that picture. And I totally agree. Another thing that's affecting the life and death of these climbers is that climbers have said that there are a lot of problems with the oxygen systems provided to the climbers. Many of them were found to be leaking. Sometimes they explode or are improperly filled because they are obtained from the black market. Now, to me, this is the most disturbing thing. Many people don't understand why no one seems to have any regard for human life on the mountain. You see someone struggling, you see someone who desperately needs water, doesn't matter. You ignore them and you don't help them. Why? because you are risking your own life to help someone, especially so in the death zone. You can barely help yourself. There really is no way you can help other people. And think too, you're not the only person on the mountain going through all of this. Many are having psychotic episodes, hallucinations, and most are having difficulty just trying to stay alive by breathing. So it's not exactly that people on the mountain have no regard for human life, it's that leaving someone there to die is really the only option you have unless you want the exact same fate. And you figure out quickly that if you help, you're gonna die. It's a question of ethics when you're signing up to do this. And many people are stunned by the lack of empathy people have for those struggling. One 18-year-old climber named Riza Ali said he asked people for water and no one gave him any. People are just obsessed with the summit and they're ready to kill themselves for the summit. Another huge cause of death is something called summit fever. Though yes, many of the physical things happening to you can cause actual fever, this is a different kind of fever. The fear of failure. Want to know why failing is not an option? Because you spend close to a hundred thousand dollars to secure a spot for yourself to summit this mountain. $65,000 is the average cost of a very baseline trip. People spend years, years and years preparing for this climb. Imagine trying to face the fact that you're failing and you need to descend. All of your friends and family know you're going. You've probably been bragging about it. 
you've wasted years preparing, your life savings is wiped out, you cannot fail. And so you know what happens when you refuse to listen to your dying body and choose to move forward anyway? Yeah, you die. And honestly, I can understand this. If you've decided to do this, it's practically your identity. Could you come home and live with yourself knowing and living with this kind of defeat? Be humbled enough to admit that this was the dumbest decision you've ever made, especially financially? I can't even imagine. And most climbers can't imagine it either. That's why they force themselves to keep on climbing, even when they know they're probably gonna die. But let's talk about the number one reason people die on Everest. Avalanches. It's the number one cause of death. The second most common cause of death is, of course, falling off of cliffs. And the third cause of death is exposure and frostbite, followed by acute mountain sickness and all of the other things I mentioned earlier. Avalanches are very common. They can be triggered by humans or earthquakes. There was one avalanche in 2015, and it hit just the base camp. It killed 19 people all at once and seriously injured 60 other people. There are other reasons you might die on Everest, a few things being pneumonia, drowning, falling ice sheets, and even rope accidents. But once you hit the peak, you may think to yourself, you've done what you came for, you've conquered this mountain. But no, most people die on the way down from the mountain. In 2017, an Indian climber named Ravi Kumar made the summit, and on his way back down, he fell into a 650-foot crevice and died. So no matter how skilled you are, no matter how much you've prepared or how far you've gone, a simple wrong move or being in the wrong place at the wrong time can claim your life. So you may have asked why people just leave these dead bodies all over the mountain. The answer to that is actually simple. It's just way too dangerous and way too expensive to retrieve them. Efforts are sometimes made to recover the bodies, but there are just so many challenges involved. On top of the already treacherous terrain, whoever is tasked with this is going to have to bring a body back down. And since most people die within the death zone, which is the last 4,000 feet of the mountain, this makes the efforts even more dangerous. Now mix in the unpredictable weather conditions, snowstorms, avalanches, and snow cover to make it difficult to find the exact location of the bodies anyway. You're going to be up there searching for who knows how long. And remember, death is a very real possibility the longer you're up on the mountain. Someone is going to have to pay an obscene amount of money just to get someone on the mountain to retrieve the bodies. And here's another issue with retrieving the bodies. The time it takes. This obviously isn't a one-day expedition. No, most people who climb Everest need at least two months. It takes 10 days just to get to base camp. Then you need six weeks to acclimate to the altitude and then nine days to climb to the top. And then you've got to trek back down. Now let's talk about the part you've been waiting for, pooping on Mount Everest. Here is the ugly truth. It's no easy task. First off, when climbers have to pee, they go in bottles in their tents and then pour the urine into the surrounding snow. Now, ideally, keyword there, ideally, you are supposed to use a travel toilet and then return it to base camp where it's weighed as part of the 22 pound trash quota that you're supposed to bring out of there. Also, ideally, 
Some very well-organized expeditions actually have these plastic barrels sunk into the ground, and then when they get full, they are shipped out. Those are the very costly expeditions, though. And there are supposed to be these bathroom tents at base camp, but the situation has gotten very, honestly, disgusting. There are almost a thousand people staying for two months around the mountain in four main camps. The badly organized climbers poop everywhere. In 2018, around 28,000 pounds of poop was removed from the mountain after just one season. How is that possible? Well, let's say 500 people are on the mountain, but how many times have you used the bathroom in the last two months? The average climber usually produces about 60 pounds of poop in a typical climbing season. Now multiply that by 500. I'll give you a hint. It's 30,000. I am going to give you some disgusting true stories about pooping mishaps on the mountain, just because I know you want to hear this. Okay, here we go. I feel like talking about this on a podcast is kind of a new low for me. So these stories came from MountEverest.info. One climber had unwisely let a very good friend borrow his best down suit. While climbing to the summit, the friend was overcome with sudden diarrhea and had to quickly drop his entire suit. Unfortunately, the friend didn't notice that the hood was between his legs and he filled up the hood. I'm sorry. He filled up the hood with diarrhea. I think I'm about to vomit. Y'all, I wrote this story down ahead of time, but reading it out loud is for real gonna make me sick. Anyway, so he fills up this borrowed suit's hood with diarrhea. He doesn't notice. He pulls up his suit and pulled on the hood. Mm-hmm, yeah. What you think happened is exactly what happened. So the friend met back up with him during the climb and asks the friend why he has mud all over his face. And the friend just replied with, that ain't mud. <laughs> oh my God. All right. One climber who was wearing just camp slippers crept out of his tent, which was perched high on the face of the mountain. He really had to poop, but unfortunately he didn't tie himself to the fixed rope while doing this and he proceeded to fall 3,000 feet down and died. Ugh. All right. So the mountain used to have way less people on it, and it was kind of acceptable to just poop and then dump it down a crevice away from base camp. The problem now is that there are thousands of other people there, and the routes are overused. One of the Sherpa leaders of a cleanup expedition said that this is a huge health hazard and it really needs to be addressed. He said the situation became vile, saying it seems like there is more poop than snow. Climbers usually dig holes in the snow for their toilet use and leave the poop in there, but it has been piling up now for years. All right, enough about poop. There are more poop stories on the MountEverest.info site if you'd like to check them out. The link is in the show notes. To wrap up this episode, this majestic beauty of a mountain in all its glory is really just a tourist trap that is being wrecked and ravaged by humans. It is full of death, despair, 
and angry, crazy tourists who were being affected by altitude sickness. Personally, the only way to attack the problems on Everest is simply not to go. You'd be better off finding literally any other mountain to climb and let this one rest and recover in all her isolation, along with the hundreds of people who will never return home. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Do me a huge favor and please subscribe to Moonless Nights so you're notified when any new episodes are available. And please be sure to leave a five-star rating and review if you're enjoying this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more episodes like it, or if you have any ideas for future episodes, email me at moonlesspodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Recording, writing, audio editing, and brand design by yours truly, Perry Farlow. Music is by Samuel Francis Johnson, Jeff Harvey, and Music Unlimited. Thank you again so much for listening. Until next time, stay weird, people.